1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: I sat down the other day with a friend of church who uh, recently had a new addition to the family, a new baby daughter, and of course the usual thrill and delight that any father demonstrates when he's got his first daughter. And as we were talking about what this meant now in becoming a father to a daughter and the challenges that uh, she would no doubt face growing up in the world that's filled with uh, so much sin and everything that we see on TV and on the Internet and so forth, He turned to me at one point in the conversation. He said, you know, Craig, he says, I think that I would feel better about this if I could just lock my daughter in the house, cut off the Internet and television until she's, say, 35, and then I would feel okay about this. Certainly, as he says that tongue-in-cheek, that might be a temptation. But all of us recognize that raising kids today, be they daughters or sons, in a world that is filled with so much sin and so much stuff that is available on the Internet, on the streets, texting, telephones, and, of course, television and entertainment and so forth, presents some huge challenges to parents who want to do all they can to properly train up a child and, in many respects, prepare them for what it means to become adults. Taking a look at this uh, somewhat of a challenging topic is Dennis Rainey from Family Life Today, author of a number of best-selling books down through the years, of course, uh, including one of his latest, Stepping Up, A Call to Courageous Manhood. And uh, Dennis, as always, great to have you on the program.
1: It's great to be with you too, Craig. I haven't been out in your direction in a long time. (laughs) Let's
0: talk a bit about um, the Passport to Purity, which is something I think is coming just in time for parents who really struggle with what they see going on in the world around them. And they say, you know, there's so many ways in which my son or my daughter has been being pulled in this direction or that direction. And it almost seems as if there's just no simple surefire way, short of my friend's recommendation, of locking them in the house till they're 35 to
1: protect them from all this. Craig, for 11 years, I taught a sixth grade Sunday school class. I had 550 11 and 12 year olds go through my class. And by the time I finished teaching that that class, I was convinced that uh, the ages 10, 11, 12 provided a window of opportunity that most parents don't realize is there and don't seize the moment to drive a truckload of truth and boundaries and education into their lives for the very reason you're talking about. They're just around the corner from what I believe is the most perilous, some of the most perilous years a human being faces on the planet, the teenage years. And I created a tool that was really the contents of what I taught those kids, and it's called Passport to Purity. And what it is is it's a, a package of a, a CDs that a parent can play and uh, in the process, uh, we guide the parent in how to have discussions with the father, son, mother, daughter over a Friday night, Saturday, to prepare them for what they're going to face in adolescence. And uh, personally, I, I, we've done a lot of good things at Family Life over the years. Our broadcast, you know, her daily, 8.30 in the morning on uh, kfax. Um, But this tool, Passport to Purity, has had 150,000 young people go through it, and I think it's one of the best things we've ever done, bar none.
0: And, you know, Dennis, when we think about the challenges that young parents are facing, and I'm sure you hear this all the time from listeners who uh, call in and write you, um, from the broadcast, to say, you know, boy, to sit down with my kids, uh, number one, when we were kids growing up, and, you know, for our, our child's perspective, that seems like back in the Stone Ages, uh, many of these things weren't even discussed. I mean, I don't, I don't think I began dating with even any kind of cursory permission from dad till 16, 17 years old. I mean, anything earlier than that, you're too young. So that kids seem to be growing up a lot faster, and then a lot of parents feel so overwhelmed because unlike what it was like when we grew up, we didn't have to deal with the Internet and sexting and texting and what goes on with uh, modern-day technology. And a lot of parents, I think, as a result, Dennis, feel so ill-equipped to address these critical topics that sometimes they make the big mistake of simply saying nothing at all or waiting until it's too late.
1: And in the process, Craig, what they do is they let the world do it. Mm. See, when we as parents don't fulfill our ministry in the lives of our, our children, and by the way, your children are not your youth pastor's responsibility. Your children are your responsibility. God gave them to you. It is your ministry. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, Since we've received this ministry, we do not lose heart. And I think what the culture is doing, Craig, is I think it's robbing parents of their courage it convinces them they're not experts, they don't know what they're doing, they're ill-equipped as you said, and what we've sought to do is put together a tool that makes the parent look like a hero because this is this is a cool tool.
0: So what you're really doing then here Dennis with the passport to purity is you're blowing some really big misconceptions out of the water. To begin with, the idea that some parents think that this is an option to educate or not to educate on the topic of purity and and sexuality and so forth. Oh, believe me, they will get educated. The question is, is it going to be done within the context of God's design for relationships, or is it going to be done outside of the home, outside of the church, by the modern culture and media?
1: Paul writes in Romans chapter 16, uh, near, near the end of that chapter, in the end of the book of Romans, this statement. He said, he's speaking like a parent. He said, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in, of what is evil. Now, if you could capture the assignment of a parent. The assignment of a parent is to train their children in wisdom, which comes from God, skill in everyday living according to the scriptures be wise in what is good, and to protect your children from evil, to be innocent. So they don't arrive in marriage carrying luggage from all the mistakes that they've made, being allowed to go their own way all the way through adolescence. And and even if you do this with excellence, you still may not prevent that, because they've got a choice. But to not engage and, and, and not have the discussion... I think what Passport to Purity does that is so effective is it gives the parent and the the young person, the 10, 11, 12-year-old, a common vocabulary, a common lexicon of terms and of topics that can be discussed, not just in this Friday night, Saturday experience, uh, mother, daughter, father, son, one time, but can be talked about then, followed up on the next week, the next month, and then for the next uh, decade of their lives as they go through adolescence. And if there's ever been a time when young people needed parents to be engaged in their lives, it's when they're going through the adolescent years before they reach adulthood and maturity.
0: Is this a tool that would have made life even easier for you and Barbara had this been available to you when you were raising your kids?
1: Oh, absolutely. The reason I taught the sixth grade Sunday school class is because I didn't know what I was doing. And I thought, you know what, I am going to use the sixth grade Sunday school class to teach my kids. And by the time you teach something 11 times, the kids don't realize it, but they've probably taught you more as a parent than you've taught them.
0: <laughs> very true.
1: And, and what I said was, I want to put this, what I learned over 11 years of teaching this class, the object lessons, how we went about it, how we had fun doing it, very entertaining style, music, drama all kinds of fun surprises along the way, embarrassing moments where we talk about, now you're turning red because we're talking about the most intimate of life issues. We had fun doing it, and the kids enjoyed it in the process. It's interesting, uh, Craig, I've got uh, soon to have 19 grandkids. Barbara and I are very young, but our, our kids have not been bashful about being fruitful and multiplying. Okay, <laughs> But we're now seeing some of my grandkids go through this. And it is really cool to think that here is a a, a 10, 11, 12-year-old who is being coached around the major traps he or she is going to face multiple times through adolescence and have a game plan and hopefully a high enough standard on the front end that they'll be able to stay out of the traps and be innocent of what is evil.
0: And, you know, when you think about this, it comes down to issues of really helping kids to understand that all along the way in life, they are going to be confronted with choices. The question is, ultimately, are they going to be equipped to have the right answer, the right decision-making process to make the right choices? And I guess that's where so often today, Dennis, modern education and secular society fails our kids because a lot of them are out there with an agenda, that tries to present up the notion that there aren't any choices, that, for example, if a young lady finds herself in a crisis pregnancy situation, that the only choice she has is to abort that child, that there are no options. This, in fact, really helps to educate the children then from a very early age on this topic to understand that they've got choices in life.
1: I, 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 I don't have this documented, but I recently heard about a, a major publisher that had done some research among pastors and um, the number one concern these pastors had about the people going to their church was that there's a generation of young men and women getting married, having kids, forming their own families, and and biblically they don't have those convictions in place. Mm. And what what we've attempted to do here is not just have a fun experience with a father, son, mother, daughter, but to, to take them to the Scripture and let them see, you know what, the Bible, the Bible is fun. The Bible is relevant. The Bible saves you from death. It saves you from pain. It saves you from shame, from guilt. And if you follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, if you build your life around right choices, which is wisdom and not foolishness, you're going to to not only experience adolescence on a whole different level, you're going to move into adulthood kind of knowing where you're going and where you base your life upon. And I think it's every parent's desire that their son or daughter be equipped as they leave their home when they're 18, 19, 20, whenever it is, to be able to live life and live it skillfully.
0: Dennis Rainey, my guest today on this edition of Lifeline. The program, of course, Family Life Today comes your way every weekday morning at 8.30 a.m. right here on KFAX. Dennis, of course, when he pulls out the pictures of the grandkids, it's not just a few photographs in a wallet. There's a whole PowerPoint presentation. We're going to come back to more of our conversation, a look at Passport to Purity, and by the way, how this wonderful resource can be available to you and your family as our conversation with Dennis Rainey from Family Life Today continues.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts, along with a very special guest, you recognize his voice certainly as host of Family Life Today, heard weekday mornings at 8.30 a.m. right here on KFAX. He's Dennis Rainey, and Dennis has joined us today to talk about a wonderful resource that he's making available through Family Life Today. And you can get more details, by the way, on the web by going to familylife.com. That's familylife.com. This new resource is called Passport to Purity and help you better equip your child for what they're going to face in life, particularly when we talk about many of the issues related to modern-day sexuality and all that that means. And, you know, it's interesting, Dennis, a lot of parents think that they are singular in the role of raising up a child or influencing a child. But I guess the real reality is that when it comes to child-rearing, there are some other influences taking place in there as well. Friendships, their peers, the people that they associate with, the influences that they're going to be subjected to in modern-day culture and media.
1: You know, Craig, we raised six children through adolescence. Nothing challenged my leadership like raising kids through adolescence. It was all hands on deck every day. But the biggest challenge, and this is going to sound terribly hypocritical, but it was Christian peers. Kids that our kids went to church with, who they looked up to, but who um, would encourage our children to disobey us or, or call us fuddy duddies or out to lunch. and I think by the time I finished raising Barbara and I finished raising our six, we both we both knew that we had to know what was going on in our kids' lives around peer pressure who their who their friends were, where they came from, and even if they went to church with our kids, did not guarantee that they were going to give them sound advice.
0: So this notion that somehow, well, if we send our child to a, a Christian school, for example, and it certainly <laughs> means nothing from a pejorative sense whatsoever, but the fact of the matter is you never know how another parent is training up their child or the kind of values that they're instilling in them And so as a result, it really comes back to building that firm, solid foundation with your son or daughter as early on as possible.
1: You know, one of the most revealing uh, times as we raised each of our six into adolescence came in junior high and high school. It was, as you just said, Craig, it was as our kids' friends moved into adolescence with them, we begin to see what the true values were and how they got played out in everyday life in these peers. And what looked like a Christian family with Christian teaching, and you, you would think with high standards, the junior high years, the high school years revealed, hey, wait a second. You know what? It may have had the appearance of going to church, teaching about Christ, but the young person either didn't get it, or the parents didn't teach it because the way they were living was in a different direction Dennis, and do
0: sometimes the parents kind of think, and, and falsely so, that this will all sort of take care of itself? In other words, I might feel bashful or awkward about addressing the issue of um, sexuality with my daughter, say. So I assume that, well, this will be covered in Sunday school, and they'll get some education because, after all, we're, we're making the sacrifice to send the kids to a private school. Those topics will be addressed there, and of course, they're good kids, and we take them to school and to church uh, every week, and so we really don't have to worry about this, it'll all take care of itself. Is that is that a, a do you find in your experience that is a frequent misperception?
1: I think so, and I think there's one other thing I'd add to it. I think a lot of parents are afraid to get into the conversation with their kids about sex because they're afraid their kids are going to say, Hey mom, Dad, what'd you do? There it is.
0: And that's the reality I think that parents need to come to grips with, that as you say, for our generation uh getting access to a lot of this meant heading down to the you know the ugly seedy side of town that nobody ever went into uh, today, you don't have to even leave the convenience and privacy of your own home. It finds you. And I guess in the, in, the, in the final analysis, Dennis, parents have to understand, look, this is going to find your kids one way or another. The question is, when it does, will they be ready with an answer? Will they be equipped with the kind of tools, skills, and moral and spiritual foundation that they need to make the right choices? No more valuable a gift that you could give to your son or daughter at a time when they need it the most than the Passport to Purity. Again, more information online at FamilyLife.com. That's FamilyLife.com. Grandma, Grandpa, don't wait for your son and daughter to go out and pick up a copy. Do something right now. Be proactive to protect your grandkids. Go online and order it today. Get more information. FamilyLife.com, the Passport to Purity. Dennis, as always, we sure appreciate the time, my friend.
1: And appreciate you, Craig, and love the listeners of KFAX and the Bay Area, and look forward to seeing you someday.
0: And look forward to you getting away from the heat and come on out here and join us in the, the natural air conditioning of the Bay Area fog. <laughs> <laughs> There's Dennis Rainey <laughs> from Family Life Today, the broadcast weekday mornings at 830 right here on KFAX. Check it out, invite a friend to listen, and check out, too, more information on the Passport to Purity. Simply log on to FamilyLife.com.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We all
0: since 9-11 have become alarmingly aware of uh, what is going on in the Muslim world, particularly on the fundamentalist end of things. Um, And as much as we're concerned about the threat to America's safety and security, the American way of life, imagine what people living underneath the oppressiveness of Islam is like in the Middle East. Most difficultly, we have seen many of these stories of women who have been charged under Sharia law courts and have received multiple lashings, Uh, situations in countries in the Middle East where women are denied what we consider to be pedestrian of the basic human rights, the opportunity to uh, uh, drive a car, be involved in the elective process, even in some cases receive a basic education. The need, of course, ultimately is to share the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ with these women. And joining me right now is a lady who's done just that, working with her husband as a missionary in the Middle East for almost a decade. Um, they, in fact, to this day, remain actively involved in reaching the unreached people in the Middle East and around the world, bringing the gospel to Muslim women. And Audra Shelby with us on the program tonight. Audra, thanks so much for taking time to join us.
2: Audra, uh, Craig, I'm delighted to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: You've written a book. Detailing your experiences behind the veils of Yemen, and of course, we've heard some uh, news in recent months here with Yemen once again back in the news. Uh, we hear at, at, at fleeting chances the opportunity for stories about life for people living behind the Islamic curtain, so to speak, particularly difficult so for women.
2: That's right, and I've been blessed with being able to tell my story and getting behind the veils and visiting and getting into the lives, sharing the lives of these women.
0: Tell us a bit about your experiences. Give us a bit of a perspective, if you would. When we hear stories about, well, in certain countries, women are not allowed to vote. Other places, they can't drive. Uh, women are not allowed to be seen in the company of other men unless it's an immediate relative. Uh, can't go to school. We think of the stories that came out of Afghanistan and the tail end of the regime of the Taliban. I mean, it, it, Are the levels of extremism, of the lack of rights that women have behind the Islamic curtain, behind the veil, uh, that severe?
2: Uh, it depends on the country and, and the area of the country. In Yemen, women did have the right to vote, and they were allowed to drive, but it all depended on permission of their husbands and support of their husbands. They were always subject to their husbands. Um, I had friends that were not allowed to go to the market or go out in, in the afternoons. They were required to stay indoors unless their husband gave them permission to leave. So you would, I did not know of a woman that was publicly uh, pr- punished, like you hear in Afghanistan or in some of the other countries, but I knew women that were beaten by their husbands and who could not uh, go out and visit other women because their husbands were too afraid they would run into a man. Uh,
0: and then this justified, based on Islamic teaching and Sharia law, but in reality, what, just a, a thin excuse for, for uh, male chauvinism uh, on, on steroids?
2: Possibly. I think we have to understand, too, that women, for a woman to go into paradise, a lot of it is based on how well she obeys her husband and how well she raises good Muslim sons. So it's more than just what her husband requires, it's what she feels like she must do in order to achieve paradise.
0: So there's a sense of religious duty behind a lot of this.
2: Yes, there is.
0: And for the average Islamic woman, uh, let's talk to your, your directly to your experience in, in Yemen. Give us a thumbnail sketch. What's what's life like for a woman?
2: Well, let me take you to a bride, okay, who's, who's very excited about the three days of her wedding. She's going to be feted and celebrated by the other women. ceremony will take place between her husband and her father. She does not attend the actual ceremony at the mosque. She is, for three days her hair is done and she's so excited and girls look forward to the day that they're going to leave their father's dominion and have a home and they dream of the love that they're going to get from their husbands. They're full of romantic dreams. Now let's flash forward a year later and see the same girl and who has no dreams in her eyes and I tell about this in behind the veils of Yemen meeting a girl who was just you could see she'd become so disillusioned and so unhappy a year later, realizing she had only left her father's dominion for her husband's dominion. Well, talk
0: about a stark contrast against the, the Western ideal, where women are involved in planning every detail uh, of the wedding and the ceremony and uh, the experience, uh, you know, that everyone will enjoy there at the wedding and, of course, the following reception. And, and you're telling me in some Islamic countries the women are not even invited to their own wedding.
2: <laughs> well, it's, it's a very different scenario. The women have these big parties where they get together for about three days. There's three days generally. Um, and each day, the, the bride wears a different color. And then the third day, the white day, she wears a white wedding gown, just like you would find here. And she has this big party, and the women are all treating her like a princess. She sits on a special chair, like a throne. And then after the actual wedding ceremony takes place between her husband and or her future groom and her father, then the, because the men are all partying separately, the, her husband and the men come in this great convoy of honking horns, and they come to pick up the bride and take her to her new home, to her husband's home, um, a lot of times with his family. And that's how her married life begins.
0: And so it begins with uh, great excitement and anticipation, and, and sadly sounds like after a while it ends up being uh, as an oppressive atmosphere at home with her new husband as maybe she had to deal with at home with her parents.
2: Yes, Yes, and a lot of times I think that's the way it worked, works out in what I've seen among the women.
0: Let's pause for a moment. We'll come back to our conversation. Audra Shelby with us today. She's author of Behind the Veils of Yemen, How an American Woman Risked Her Life, Family, and Faith to Bring Jesus to Muslim Women. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more as this edition of Lifeline continues.
1: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: And we're talking with Andra Shelby, which, by the way, is not her real name. We're just kind of helping to protect her anonymity, because uh, she has for over a decade been involved in sharing the good news of the gospel with Muslim women. She has a new book out called Behind the Veils of Yemen, How an American Woman Risked Her Life, Family, and Faith to Bring Jesus to Muslim Women. Audra, when we think of the level of oppression within Islamic society, particularly in the Middle East, and Sharia law, and so on and so forth, and a lot of this both religious and cultural, uh, clearly uh, life is pretty mundane and pretty oppressive, for women, I would suspect that into that atmosphere, interjecting the good news of Jesus Christ must have been, I would imagine, regarded as a a tremendous hope for these women, wouldn't it be?
2: Well, you would think that. Now, even as poor and as, as needy as the women were, they looked on me as an infidel and as inferior to them. And so even at the beginning... They have been told, a lot of them are illiterate, 98% of Yemeni women out in villages are illiterate, don't know how to read or write or add or subtract. So all they know about their religion is what they have been told, and all they know about Christianity is what they've been told, or what they've seen in American films. So their concept of American women are that we are immoral, corrupt women who sleep around and don't love our children. So when I would see them and they would meet me or meet a Christian face-to-face for the first time, they were totally stunned that I wasn't who I was supposed to be, that I was very different from what they had been told. So it wasn't this hunger to know. It was at first a disdainful attitude and then to realize, wait, you're not the person that, that you're supposed to be, and then wanting to know what the difference was, why I wasn't that person, and then seeing a strength in me so many of my friends, and I tell about instances in, behind the veils of Yemen where they would say, Anti, you're, you're strong, wanting to know why. Why wasn't I afraid to ride in a taxi with, where there was a man? Why wasn't I fr- afraid of being sick and, and dying? Um, and that opened avenues to share with them. Uh, why I wasn't afraid, because I walked with Jesus.
0: So you really had to initially move from dispelling a lot of the misconceptions Correct. that no doubt are very much played up in Islamic media and uh, certainly by the imams and mosques and the men and so on and so forth to paint this very negative, vile picture of what Western women are all about. So you overcome that that misconception And then in that process, I mean, I would imagine as we regard and see the teachings of the the God, small g, of Allah within the Quran and the Hadith to be this ruthless, bloodthirsty, fearful, uh, vengeful deity, and then contrast that against the God of the Bible who sacrifices his very own son, for forgiveness and reconciliation to the creation. I mean, you look at those two major differences between Allah of the Quran and the God of the Bible, and I would imagine that once they begin to see and and grasp some level of the stark contrast between the two, that must be eye-opening for them.
2: It is. It's a slow process, because they have to see it in me first, because they are so prepared, they're so keyed, to the Bible being corrupt, that they don't want to hear anything from my book. It's corrupted. They don't believe in my, my Jesus of the New Testament because they have been told that all of it is lies. So at first, actually, they don't even want to hear it. And it's seeing something different in me and seeing the love and actually trying to almost sponge it out of me, squeeze it from me, to fill their lives, that's what really helps them see something's missing. There's something I have that they don't. Um, and seeing the limits of their religion when they're in, in total despair um, and wanting what I have in mind, that has been more opening in their lives than just trying to, to share um, the truth of Scripture. I'm not saying not sharing the Scripture, truth of scripture, but I'm saying using it in everyday life, using it constant as my reasons for why, uh, why I believe, why I'm strong, why I'm not afraid, why I love, why my husband loves me and is my friend, not my owner.
0: In the end, give me kind of your your valuation of your experience there in Yemen for almost a decade.
2: Well, it was, it was a wonderful time. It was probably the most challenging time of my life. It was sweet in its dependence on the Lord and, and seeing Him and knowing Him in a way that I wouldn't have otherwise. It was, uh, I, I felt constantly drained just by the need of the women. I, I felt stretched to meet the needs, the emotional needs, the spiritual needs, the mental needs, even physical needs. Um, But it was such a a rewarding time to know what it means to realize my strength is limited, but Christ is not, that he is everything he says he is and is everything that I need and more than enough to meet any need. And and it, it was a wonderful time of learning and growing in me, which I think in Behind the Veils of Yemen, I think I grew as much as the women that I met grew in, in my ministering to them.
0: In that sense, did it also, in your experience, draw you closer to the Lord, um, particularly as you're seeing the, the major contrast, not just between uh, Western society and Middle Eastern society, but to the major differences between the, the teachings of what is the, the lie of Islam and the truth of the gospel?
2: Absolutely. I mean, we, we never lived in Yemen that there wasn't a travel warning against being there. And you had I had to come face to face with who God is and walk totally by faith and totally dependent on him for survival, for safety, for security. And it was it was a sweet dependence in seeing him and knowing that you are totally reliant on him. I mean his grace is sufficient, his power is made perfect in weakness. And it was a it was a wonderful blessing to be able to experience that without the comforts that sometimes distract us from knowing him.
0: During that time, um, I would assume, Audra, that you had an opportunity to lead some of these women to Christ, even if it was done kind of uh, uh, quietly and surreptitiously.
2: Yes, yes, I was. I was able to share Scripture. I was able to share my faith. I was able to share the story of Jesus uh, with women many times, just in answering to their question. Um, and it was—it's it's a wonderful thing to see women that have so much need to be loved and to be valued and have so many dreams of their own that will never be fulfilled by their religion, to see and to have hope in Jesus Christ.
0: And in doing so, uh, how startling the change, the contrast, in their life?
2: Well, you have to remember that it is a startling change internally and and spiritually. But then they face um, reality. It's against the law for a Yemeni person, man or woman, to convert out of Islam. It is punishable by death, usually instigated by a family member. And we knew several people that were turned over to authorities by their own family, by their father, by their brother, by their husband, or by a wife. And then they go in severe persecution and torture in an effort to make them recant the Christian faith. So uh, women in Yemen especially are very, and men, it's a very social culture. Everything they do is communal, and to be cut off and shut off from their people, from their families, from their homes, is devastating. It's a real challenge to uh, for them as they adapt and grow in their Christian faith to realize they've lost everything to follow Jesus.
0: Clearly a, a, a very sad and oppressive uh culture and and religion, and yet one that, in spite of all of that, uh, can receive great freedom that comes through the saving knowledge and relationship with Jesus Christ. Audra, we appreciate your time. Folks can get more information about this new book, Behind the Veils of Yemen, by Audra Grace Shelby, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Those still exist, don't they, Richard? One or two, I think, yeah. One. (laughs) And, of course, through Amazon.com. The book published by Chosen, again, Behind the Veils of Yemen. Our special guest today, Audra Grace Shelby.
1: Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications. All rights reserved.